This morning, as we look to God's Word, uh, a day like today, I knew that there, you, some of you are show-offs, by the way, that you would show up on, uh, on Sunday morning like this, you know. Uh, how many of you stayed up too late last night? Just confession time, confession time, confession time. But, uh, you, you need to know something about us who work up on stage here Sunday morning, Okay. Bad stuff happens Saturday night, okay? Bad stuff happens Saturday night. Uh, my guy, Zach, uh, uh, who, by the way, by the way, Christmas uh, around here was just great, just great. I hope that you got to participate in that. Uh, my guy, Zach, did a lot of work, and a lot of you did a lot of work, um, and it was just a fabulous time, and kind of, I, I just want to tell you, I think you already know this, that um, we want it to be a fabulous time where we... Um, put on display uh, God's goodness in his son Jesus and that uh, this church is committed to that, this, this good gospel. And so uh, we're thankful to meet your friends, your family, your neighbors. Um, it's just a great time. And so I'm thankful for what God has done in this last weeks. Um, last night, Zach was up on his roof at 3 a.m., uh, because he thought it was fun, and uh, he didn't have his ladder, and so he uh, did a makeshift like what kids would do when they're building a fort to get up on his roof to try to plug some holes. Um, that always happens Saturday night, Sunday morning. It always does. It always does. So anyways, it's good to be here. I want to encourage you, um, don't come to church. Don't be with God's people. Don't read his word when it fits into your schedule. Don't do it. Um, because there'll always be a reason to not be here. There'll always be a reason uh, to not walk with the Lord. There'll always be a reason uh, why you lay down and quit. Um, and I just want to encourage you on that. This morning, as I was thinking about how to preach and what to preach, um, and I, I want to tell you that for me as a pastor, uh, a lot of this is really easy, really easy. And I, I want to tell you why. Uh, I just try to figure out what I need, and then I make a double portion, right? I, I, I make a bigger batch, because I figure if I need this, you probably need this as well. And so that's what we're kind of going to do here this morning. And uh, because uh, the things that we do, the things that we are struggling with, are common to man. They're common. Common struggles. I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> Sorry, it's common this time of year. Um, these are common to man that um, I would struggle with my health, that I would struggle with family stuff, that, that we would struggle with discouragement. All, all these things are common to man. And so we gather together uh, to hear from God, to hear uh, not just his thoughts, but his, um, his instructions on how to live as he desires us to live. And so this morning... Uh, what we're going to look at is we're going to review uh, really four messages. I'm not going to try to preach four messages, I don't think. Um, but share with you four passages that are kind of uh, critical and thematic uh, for the book of Romans. And so if you want to turn to chapter 1, that's where we'll start. Let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on our time. God, uh, you are good and kind and merciful to us. We thank you for the end of one year, your faithfulness that you provided for all that we needed, even in the midst of difficulty, 
you provided for us, and so we can trust you for the days ahead. We thank you for the, uh, the word that you've given us that we can read, that we can know your thoughts and your instructions, that we can know your plan, uh, and that most of all, that we can know you, that we can know you. God, thank you uh, for your word. Bless our time in it now, in Jesus' name, amen. And so um, we're going to get back into the book of Romans. I just want to remind you, huge city, huge city. I don't know, uh, what would you say the greatest city in the world is right now? Tehachapi, yeah. (laughs) Metropolitan city, it's got everything, right? You know, whatever that city would be, um, I think probably the, the biggest city I've been in, uh, and it feels big because of the way it's set up, is New York. Um, and just when you're there, it's just, you're lost in the city. You know, the city's just going straight up and everything's right there. I know there are bigger cities. I know that there are different places where you may have traveled, but Rome was that city. It was that city. Some have suggested that there were four million people, and for uh, to be so long ago and to be so condensed, um, it was probably an amazing place. The, the thing about Rome and the thing about every big city, it's interesting. Uh, if you'd go to L.A. right now, um, there are different pockets, streets, and um, neighborhoods that are different ethnicities, right? Uh, you know, there's... Uh, uh, people would refer to some as th- this is the the area where this group lives. I I lived down in Hollywood uh, for a year or so uh, between college and seminary and during seminary uh, because I thought I was going to be an actor. No, I didn't. I was just living down there. Uh, but uh, it was interesting to me that there were different streets in Hollywood. This this, this street was uh, those from South America, and if I was you know, if I knew more, they were probably from a specific country in South America. And then, you know, a couple of streets over, there was a Russian pocket. And then there were uh, different Middle Eastern and, and different situations. I remember going to one of the junior highs there and I saw a letter to the parents and it was in 12 different languages. And I always thought that that was funny. And I thought, who has the responsibility to communicate with the parents? Like, it sounds ridiculous, but... Uh, um, very difficult, very different. And I think that that's what Rome would have been like. Very di- People from different areas bringing in not just their language, but their culture. And not just their culture, but their thoughts and religions and their thoughts about God. In the midst of that were those who were Jews. And in the midst of them were those who had trusted in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Um, and so this is the, the group, and they were believing all kinds of things, all kinds of things. And, and I think about that, and I think about, well, Tehachapi is not that diverse, but now with the internet, now with uh, the idea of different thoughts and coming into our home via the TV or via our computer, it's like this city is one big or a whole world because we're connected And so uh, this is the backdrop for the book of Romans, but I believe it's a backdrop to our world as well, Uh, that many different thoughts, uh, many different ideas about how to live, um, how to, uh, you know, your value system, but also more importantly, 
what you think about God, what you think about your life, what you think about death. This morning we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 because I think it's really a a key and a, a, a central verse for the book of Romans. It's kind of towards the beginning. It's it's as Paul is you know done with his greetings and his desire for the Roman church, and in the midst of that, he says this: Romans chapter one verse sixteen. He says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek." And I just want to start out saying this, that the high point here is this, that there's salvation for those who believe. Salvation for those who believe. Um, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And you think, well, why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? And I think that we would know it, right? Um, many of you struggled with this at Christmas time, at your Christmas family gathering, or maybe even Thanksgiving. Um, sometimes Thanksgiving uh, is one of those things, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful Thanksgiving only comes once a year because my family gathering is tense and it's, it's hard to be with them. And you say, well, why? And they say, well, because there's so many different ideas. Our hearts are not united uh, on what it is, the gospel. And so there's uh, many get laughed at. Uh, because of the gospel. Many get persecuted because of the gospel. And as you picture Rome, once again, this this city, many different ideas, uh, uh, undoubtedly, Christians, uh, we know they were persecuted, but they were not respected because of their belief in Jesus. And so Paul, at the outset of the book of Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not in any way backing down. Uh, uh, shrinking back and holding my tongue and going, oh, this is probably unpopular. I'm going to get laughed at. He says, no, I'm not ashamed. And it wasn't just that Paul was bold. I do think he was bold in his personality. But it wasn't just that he was bold in his personality. I think that it, it was more to that. It had more to do with the message than it had to do with the messenger. And I want to encourage you with that, that this is not about you It's not about your personality. It's about this message, this gospel message. And uh, as Paul shares this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, There were plenty of things that Paul was ashamed of of himself. There were plenty of things that were embarrassing about just being in life. But he says about the gospel, I'm not ashamed. Why? Uh, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, what's so great about this? It's not about uh, whether it seems funny or irrational or whatever, but it is the answer, the answer. Uh, As we present the gospel, it's not about um, whether even people accept it, but to know this, that this is the message that could change their life. And because it's the work that God would do, the power is in his message The power is in his message for those who would believe. That's why it's not something to be ashamed of, even if you are laughed at, even if you are um, in the midst of being challenged by competing ideologies and ideas. 
I, I think about this and I think about how often um, the gospel just doesn't fit into common conversation. It just doesn't fit. Uh, it doesn't work that this would be an exclusive gospel. I love that. Uh, uh, it's it's not just that it's a, uh, ex- inclusive. It doesn't grab everybody and say, hey, everyone's okay. It's, it is exclusive. Um, God's power on display. And I, I want to tell you that the, the reason that Paul kept going on this, he kept going and he says, I'm not ashamed. And I want to tell you that this is one of many passages we could have went to in the book of Romans over and over again. He doesn't say the word ashamed so much as he shows that he's not ashamed. Why? You think about it, and you think about having the answer. And uh, he says, what comes through this message? Salvation for guilty people, damned because of what they have done. In this desperate human condition, Paul knows the answer, the dramatic solution for everyone, for their eternal problem. I think of all the, uh, the things that don't matter much that we get excited about. You know, there's a new place to get a burrito in town. It's pretty exciting. How many of you are excited? Come on, tell me. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm excited too. Um, big deal. Tehachapi is a big deal. And you think about, you think about Rome, all the new ideas and thoughts and restaurants and places and stuff you could buy and all that stuff that would be exciting. Uh, Paul says, forget about all that stuff. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the message for salvation. I want to highlight something and we're going to come back to it. He says, for everyone who believes, for everyone who believes, and there's this inclusive everyone all the time. We'll get to it in a moment. Everyone who believes. And I want to tell you that that's the reason that it is this message that uh, you think about just some of the dumb things like a new burrito place, right? A new place to get your burrito. There's plenty of people who say, I don't really like Mexican food. And so they just want, want, want. It's not that big of a conversation, right? Or maybe you say, oh, it's so exciting, you know, uh, there's a new baseball field. And you go, I don't really like baseball, you know. Or, or maybe it's, uh, it's something that is changing when it comes to, you know, your money or something that comes to the, you know, what you can do and have for your house. And you say, well, I don't have a house. Uh, I have plenty of money or I don't have that much money, so it doesn't impact me. But as Paul looked at this, he realized that this is for everyone who believes, that, that this is available for everyone, that if you would trust in Jesus, your life would be changed, the good news would be for you, the power of God would work for you, that you would be saved. And then he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want to tell you that if you read the book of Romans, you hear that over and over and over again. Jews and Greeks. And what he is pointing to is this, that as he looked in Rome, as, as he, he saw the people that he was writing to, he was saying, to you who are God's chosen, 
This is important for you to know about the plan of God. And they were, they were excited about the plan of God because they were God's people. And so he, he was explaining to them part of the plan that they didn't get, that Jesus was the Messiah. So it was a message for them first, but not last, right? It was also for the Greeks. And as you would look at this, as the Jews would have looked at this, they would have said, well, there's us, God's people, And then there were those other people, the Greeks. Everybody else. Everybody else. They weren't all Greeks, but they would refer to them as Greeks. Because it didn't really matter because they weren't Jews. Right? But this idea was that Paul goes over over and over. He knew it well, himself being a Jew. He knew this thought well. That the gospel message was not just for the Jews. It was for the Greeks as well. Praise God. Praise God. Uh, some of you are putting, connecting the dots there, and you're going, oh, only with the Jews, we wouldn't be meeting here this morning. I wouldn't be excited about the gospel. We wouldn't be excited about Jesus even coming. And so we see salvation for those who believe. I want to encourage you, uh, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because as, power, uh, as Paul wrote, God inspired, it's the power of God to work in people that need some work, which is us. It's the power of God working that salvation that we could not do for ourselves. It is the eternal problem. It's the dramatic solution for people like us. Number two, let's go to Romans chapter three. And, and once again, as I shared with you before, these are just passages, one passage per uh, but there are many other passages that teach the same thing. One of the things that surprised me in, in my study of the book of Romans is the repetitiveness of it all. That Paul is not just hitting something and then moving on. He is hitting it, building upon it, and then referring back to it over and over again. And so what we get secondly here in Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 12 uh, is the universal human condition. I, I had it more wordy in my notes prior, but I just want to say the universal human condition. And why, when we say everybody, this is true of everybody, somehow that's encouraging to us, isn't it? You know, when you think about, um, you know, everybody has to pay taxes. You're like, oh, they're terrible, but everybody's doing it, right? You know, and then, or maybe like, the idea of everybody, you know, struggling with health or every, like everybody seems to make it just plain and every, everybody, you know, like the level playing field. But I want you to get what it is that we know about the universal human condition. As you look in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, it goes like this, and we could lengthen this out, but I just want to hit these verses this morning. What then are we Jews any better off? Um, Paul's referring to half of this, uh, but he's going to include. He says, no, uh, not at all. For we are already charged that all, both the Jews and Greeks, there it is again, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No, No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. That's the human condition. Uh, Doesn't feel like a club you want to be a part of, though, does it? 
It doesn't feel like something that you want to say, oh, we're all in this boat together. It's a bad boat to be in. I want to point out what Jews and Greeks, right? He starts off with Jews. Are we any better? And then he says, Jews and Greeks. What is he saying? Everybody. Everybody. And as they would have looked at Rome in their, their eyesight of the mob around them, they would have said, everybody's different. And Paul's saying, no, everybody's the same. People speak different languages. They look different. They have different color hair, maybe different color skin. Everybody is the same. Everybody. And what is this thing that they are the same in? What unites mankind? What is the universal human condition? What is it? It's we're under sin. In verse 9, he says, charges that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. What does that mean to be under sin? Well, it gives the picture of this, that, that they're stuck. They're stuck there. Because of sin, they're stuck. And, and what is it? What are they stuck under? It's an evil tyrant. It's an evil tyrant. It's the idea of being, having a wicked king over you that you can't get out from under. I want to tell you that most of us have felt that when it comes to our own sin. We, we may have been a particular sin that we were stuck in, or maybe it was just the overall cumulative effect of sin on our lives. But we realize that because of being human, because it's true of everybody, we feel what it is, and what is it that we're under sin? We're stuck there. We're under this tyrant leader. And then he patches together some things from the Old Testament, some quotes, and I want to tell you it was true in the Old Testament too, and it's true in the New Testament, and it's true today, uh, these things. And what is it? Uh, and and, and he, he, he's underlining this as universal human condition. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have uh, turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None righteous. Uh, one of the great themes, we're going to come up to it in our next point, but this idea of no one is right before God. No one. I want you to think about this, and I want, to, I want to tell you that this is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle for you to put in your mind that God would remind you of over and over again. This is part of your view of how you look at the world. This will help you with the way you parent. This, is, this will help you with the way you parent. And you say, wait, what does this have to do with parenting? Well... Um, if you think, if you think that your sweet little child is comes out righteous, and and when you know when they get old enough to speak, I will hear the righteous words that proceed from their mouth, and the sweetness of their relationship of being perfect and right in the eyes of God, it will just be on display. Uh, I, I want to tell you. You will be shocked at the things your kids can do at an early age. Oh, they're so smart. Oh, they're so articulate. 
the way they told me no. Uh, uh, I, I want to tell you that that will display, but I, I want to tell you it will also help you in your marriage, right? It will help you as you think about your coworkers. It will help you as you view politicians and lawyers and uh, people in high positions. It says what? None righteous. None righteous. He's reiterating this over and over again. He, he, he says that not just one line of this. He says there's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, right? I think that often uh, we either portray ourselves as, you know, I was just searching for God with just this tender heart that I love so much. And, you know, I was searching for him and somehow he was like hiding from me. I was seeking for him and, and you know, just the, the clarity of my own heart. And, you know, I was just trying to be a good person. So I sought after God, but I couldn't find him. It's not true. It's not true. Why? Because the Bible told me so, right? Uh, no one seeks for God. I want to highlight one other thing from this passage. It says in the middle of verse 12, no one does good. You, you know, I always try to do my best and I, I, I like to do good to others. I like to pay it forward, pay it forward, right? I want to tell you, it, you can do good without being good, and so it's not really good, okay? No one does good. And you say, well, it seems like they're doing good. I want to tell you, this is not in the eyes of men. This is not in the eyes of one another. This isn't a cumulative we vote on whether it's good or not. It's in the eyes of God. No one does good. And so what you get here is there's none righteous, there's no one that seeks after God. There's not, there's not a do-gooder around. And I want to highlight one. Not even one. Not even one. Not, not even your grandma or your Aunt Tilly. Um, I, I don't know who it is that you think of. You know, your, your Mother Teresa or whatever it is. Like, it, it doesn't matter who you think is good. And, and most of the time we just put that on a scale, right? They're better than I am, you know. Uh, they seem better. I want to tell you, uh, the scripture says with clarity, there's not one, not one who's righteous, not one who seeks for God, not one who does good. And I want to tell you, that is a clarifying piece that you need to have. When I think about what will be helpful for me this next year, it's that I would not be fooled by others, but even the state of my own heart apart from Jesus. This is what uh, the scripture says. Which brings us uh, to my third point this morning, the necessity of justification, or, and I put in parentheses in my own notes, grace. The necessity for justification, parentheses, grace. Romans chapter 3. Um, let me read this to you. Uh, th this is such an incredible passage. And as you see, it's in chapter 3. It follows up uh, from the non-righteous. Uh, as he's building his case, we get down to verse 21. 
He says this, but now the, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, uh, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, pointing to a different time. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show that God's righteousness, uh, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What a passage, right? I hope I preached that like in five weeks when I went over that. I don't think I did, but I should have, okay? Because there's so much good stuff there. But I want to highlight some things. I want to remind you of some things. If there's none righteous, uh, not one righteous, what is he talking about when he says righteousness? How can we have righteousness of God? If no one's right with God, how can... And and how could you be righteous? You could be righteous... By doing everything that God wants. But we didn't do everything that God wants. And we don't do everything that God wants. So we're not righteous. And so what he's presenting here is, uh, he says, manifest apart from the law. The idea of how can we be righteous apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As we look at this, We could be righteous with the law, but we're not. But we need to be righteous before God, but we're not. But now he presents a righteousness that is through faith. As you see in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Very famous passage. We teach it to our kids. We remember it. We recite it. But what he is saying is he's saying, We've already gone over this, right? All have sinned. All are guilty. It's the, it's the human condition. Uh, it is the universal human condition of all people, Jews and Greeks. And then in verse 24, and it says that we short, fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He uses these huge words, uh, justified. Justification is a big word, huge word in the book of Romans, over and over again in various forms. And so this passage is, is just talking about this big theme from the book of Paul. And what is justification? It is taking unrighteous people. It is taking unrighteous Kevin, not Parsons, but Bosler. okay? Uh, he, he is taking my life, my life, what I have done, in my unrighteousness, and he is making me right by something. And he says justified. He uses another word in there. He says uh, justified, uh, but then he moves on by grace, not by what I've done, but because of grace, as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Why grace? Why does it say grace in there? Because I've needed it, right? Grace is the idea that I got what I didn't deserve. 
I, I didn't earn what it was. And I want to tell you, I was unrighteous. And so in our, uh, forgive me for saying it this way, I'm going to. In our Catholic minds, what we say is, if I'm guilty, what should I do? Do something good. Give me the eraser. Give me the eraser. Uh, I'll do the weighing thing, right? I've done a bad thing, now I'll do a good thing or a weird thing or like reciting something that somehow that would X out that. I want to tell you, that's not how you take care of your sins. The only way to take care of your sins is by grace. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he, and let me, redemption. Redemption is the idea of buying, buying that. And then the next verse, uh, verse 25. Whom God put forward, this is Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood. Let me talk about that word propitiation. I'm not sure I hit it hard enough last time I preached it, okay? In some of your Bibles, it says atonement, atonement, atoning sacrifice. And it puts these two words, atoning and sacrifice, it puts them together and it says, this is uh, what it is that God has done. He's made to make sacrifice, right? And when you think of making sacrifice, sometimes we think of giving something up, but if you go back to the Old Testament, what was sacrifice? Killing an animal, right? And you say, well, I've done something. I've killed the animal. I've killed the animal. I want to tell you that it's not just about sacrifice. Atonement, that word atonement, is the, the idea of the covering over of sins. The covering over of sins. The atoning sacrifice. And that, that was the picture in the Old Testament of what had happened. The atoning sacrifice. But I want to tell you the word propitiation, which we don't use. Uh, There's no conversation that I've ever had, apart from the Bible, that I've used the word propitiation. Never. In fact, every every time I go over it, I'm I'm re-looking it up and making sure I understand what it means. Propitiation is the idea of sacrifice, atonement, but also to remove wrath. To remove wrath, propitiation. And you work backwards and you say, well, I don't really like that word. Anger? Anger? My anger? No, not your anger. Who's angry then? I want to tell you, God's angry. He is justifiably angry. And you say, to who? You. You and me. And you say, well, God would never be angry at me. Oh, yes, he would. <laughs> oh, yes, he would. And you say, well, why? I'm not at that bad of a... Yes, you are. That's what the Bible says, right? None righteous. No one seeks for God, right? These are the picture, this is the picture of the, the human condition. And because of our human condition, we're not righteous. And because of us not being righteous, the things that we have done, why, what is it? God is angry with us. And rightly so. And rightly so. And apart from his son Jesus, his wrath will be upon us. This passage is so amazing because it says this. Verse 24. And are justified, made right, by his grace, his unmerited favor, as a gift, not something we've earned, through the redemption 
the buying back that is in Christ Jesus, what Christ did, the man Jesus did on the cross, the, the Messiah. Verse 25, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood. Why is God no longer angry at you? Why is God's wrath no longer there? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He goes on to describe. He, he, he says, uh, who put forward as a, verse 25, who put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith that we would place our trust in him. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, his patience. And, and the divine forbearance is that God should not be patient, but he was patient and he is patient. And he has passed over former sins, that he has not held our sins to us and for us, that he would not leave us there. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just. He may be just. If Jesus wouldn't have come, then our sins would not be taken care of and there was no justice. There was no righteousness and holiness. Why? Because our sins were overlooked and just dismissed. It was, they were still there. It was still reality. But God desired to preserve his righteousness and holiness so that he desired a solution to our sin problem that, would, that he would remain just, but not just that, that in him that he might be just, and what? The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why was Jesus, and uh, Christmas, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? So that the unjust, the unrighteous, the unholy can be made right. That's why Jesus came. What an amazing passage. Uh, what an amazing truth that we, uh, it's necessary that we would be justified, but it's necessary also that we would have grace. It's necessary. Which brings me to my last point this morning. My last passage, my last sermon this morning. Um, Romans chapter 8. Turn over there, please. Um, one person mentioned to me, and I always want to take input, if you have any, if you, you have any corrections, especially in you in the first service, because maybe I'll be able to correct it for the second service. Um, I got some feedback from some visitors that they said, oh, I just thought you would have talked more about the love of God. And I, I don't know if that was my fault or their ears, they had bad ears, I don't know. But I, I want to be clear this morning um, that Romans, in the sharing of the gospel, in Paul's message inspired by God, you have the unstoppable power of the love of God. The unstoppable power. If you look at chapter 8, uh, how can you not talk about this passage when you're talking about the, the highlights of the book of Romans? Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And like I said on the other passages, we can expand this if we wanted to, but we'll just hit it real quick. Uh, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, uh, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress uh, or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long who are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a great passage. That's a great truth that can encourage your heart in the next year, can it not? Um, That this is the unstoppable power of God. I want to just highlight first that we are the winners. We are the winners. And I, I say that not to say, most of us feel like winners anyways, right? And if we're not winners, we just find someone who's a bigger loser than us, and then we compare ourselves, right? Winners, we are winners. And, and, and as Paul is reflecting on the human condition, what God has done, how he has loved us, he says, uh, who could be against us? We are the winners. We are the ones that will be victorious. Verse 32. And then he says this. He did not spare his son. I want to tell you that, that one of the greatest truths and the most concrete of the truths of the Bible is the love of God. Why? He did not spare his son. He didn't, because he loved his son, he willingly gave up this precious possession to love us. It's so hard to, it's so hard to gather. Uh, he, he says... That he loved us. There's a, a, a physical representation, a, a clarity that God loves you. What is it? It's that he did not spare his son, but gave him up for us. And so, as you think about your needs for the next year, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. And you say, how do you know that? He did not spare his own son. That's the way he's committed to you. Uh, We've had some people recently. um, Brad Lundberg, he's in the hospital. Uh, Dennis Driscoll is on hospice. And how do you face those things? Some of you have been in the hospital a while. It's pretty fun, huh? (laughs) Right? You've been there a long time, and the, the, the days wear on, right? And you try to keep a good attitude, but it's hard. And you say, well, why? How? How's this going to work out? And what do I know? I want to say, he gave up his son. He gave up his son. He's going to take care of you. Does that mean you're going to get well? No. It means that even in death, even in death, you will be well because you're right with him. He gave up his son. How do, you not, how do you know that he'll graciously take care of you? It's because he gave up his son. Verse 33. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the answer to that is everybody, right? Everybody. God's person that he's purposed out and he's saved and he's God's elect. Who will bring a charge? And you say, well, there's all kinds. But will it stick? No. Why? Because in that, in that uh, human condition that we have, in that failing that God saved us, what, what does he now do for us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is, what is Christ doing for us? Before the Father, the accusations come, right? The physical representation, the one that made it all right, continues to, to hold that place to deflect any accusations before the Father. Why? Because I paid for that one, 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 and that one. And the ones tomorrow I'm gonna I'm ready for the like he is the one who stands in the middle, interceding for us forever. The guilty are defended by the one who did the work to make it right. You and I guilty. As charged, even more charges can be brought, right? You didn't find out about all the things that we've done. But the guilty are defended by the one who made it right. As we move on. um, Verse 35. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I want to point out something. That list right there, those things happen. It's not that they don't happen. As you look at that list, you say, well... As the church at Rome, as the Jews and the Greeks and everyone who's believed that, that were hearing this, what were they facing? I think that's just the heater. I hope it is. Um, uh, as you look at this, uh, he is looking at the present or future imminent realities. He's looking at the things that Some might say, these are going to separate you. These are going to somehow uh, fix or no longer allow you to experience the goodness of God. And he says, no, no. As, As he reflected on this love that God has for us, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes back and forth from the love of Christ to the love of God. And and. I don't want to make a big deal out of that because I think that the idea is that God loved us so much that he sent Christ to do the loving thing of what? Sending in our place. So it is the love of Christ in the love of God. You know, anyways. So what shall separate us from these things that are imminent to happening? These things will happen. He says, you know, there's nothing. Verse 37 He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. He says, no, we we are conquerors. How do I know? 
because Christ did it for us. It's not dependent upon the circumstances of life, these imminent realities. He closes this section by saying this, for I am sure, for I am sure. And there's a surety of the closeness of the love of God. Why? Because of what God has done for us and his son Jesus. There's a surety. And so he looks upon what the future might hold, neither death nor life nor angels. He, he spans it out to things that he cannot see, he cannot comprehend, and nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else, uh, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just want to say this, and and be careful. Uh, When we talk about God's love, a lot of times we think of ourselves as the object of God's love, as being lovable, right? God loves me. Well, of course he does. Of course he does. Everybody loves me. You know, I'm pretty lovable. You know, I'm easygoing. I'm easy to get along with. And of course, what's not to love, right? I want to tell you, Paul has belabored what's not to love in the book of Romans. God wanted you to know how unlovely you are to display his amazing love and grace to you. That he would give that to you. And I want to tell you that Paul knew for certain because of his relationship with God and he gave it to us that we too might be sure. What? Sure of what? The closeness of the love of God for us dependent on one thing. If we are in Christ Jesus. The Lord. The Lord. I want to tell you some people don't like that they go, oh yeah, Jesus loves me. And he does love you. He, this is the whole thing. But he is the Lord. He is the Lord. That's who he is. In Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to tell you, uh, simply put, the gospel is for everyone. And everyone needs to respond to the gospel. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and the blessing of being in it now. Uh, Help us to reflect on these things. Help these things to be an encouragement in the midst of whatever you have for us this year. Help us to be faithful to you and like kind to your faithfulness. So we realize we can't, um, we are not like you. We are not like you. Uh, But as we trust in you, you can give us grace, mercy, and strength to be the people you want us to be in this next year. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.